broadcasting from Moscow, Idaho. This is the Campus Rich Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode 12, The Jewish Question, part four. Welcome to the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. This is Keith Darrell. Go check out our uh, website at crosspolitik.com. Subscribe, become a member, and check out all the goodies that we have there, including some Gary DeMar videos, some Toby Sumter on Proverbs videos, and uh, maybe a few other things cooking in the kitchen. Uh, But we have cooking here today as we're going to wrap up. I was going to maybe extend it to one more episode, but I've decided to wrap up addressing our Jewish apologetic and what we've looked at so far. So if you're in a discussion with a Jew and someone asks you, well, what prophecies did Jesus fulfill? Um, oftentimes a Christian maybe goes to uh, the virgin birth or maybe Isaiah 53 and try to argue that he's a suffering servant and blah, blah, blah. You can kind of go back and forth the interpretation of those verses, but is there any way maybe a bit more specifically to drill down and kind of give some more specifics out of the Jewish scriptures of why Jesus is in fact the Jewish Messiah? And the first week we looked at uh, Abraham and off- him offering up his beloved son, and so um, kind of the typology uh, going all the way back to the Abrahamic faith uh, finds its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when we look at uh, Islam and Judaism uh, in the context of the Abrahamic faith, I believe that we at least kind of have a, a beginning point of contact that we're trying to lay out that uh, from Abraham is uh, where our faith comes from and uh, the concept of Christianity comes from is actually a Jewish idea going all the way back to the Abrahamic faith. But uh, what we drilled down a little more specifically, we looked at Daniel chapter 2, and the idea that King Nebuchadnezzar had a vision, and there are four kingdoms, and the fifth kingdom that he had a vision of was, in fact, the kingdom of God. And he was the head of gold, followed by uh, the Medo-Persian Empire, which was the silver, followed by the bronze, which was the Greek Empire, and then followed by the Roman Empire, which are the legs of iron. And so, according to King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2, uh, the Messiah was to come during the fourth empire which was the Roman Empire, and as I've been arguing, and as historically we know, Christianity arose, or Jesus Christ literally rose uh, in the first century during the Roman Empire, and then he ended up smashing uh, the Roman Empire, and it's the church or the kingdom of God that now stands. And then we last week we looked a little bit at Daniel chapter 9, and even more specificity of the 49, uh, uh, 490 weeks finding its uh, termination also in the first century. And so this week, what we're going to do to kind of wrap up is I'm going to brush on the basic idea of the Son of Man. Now, I mentioned earlier I was going to maybe divide this into two sections, uh, but I've, I, I'm committed to just one more on on this issue, and I've gotten a couple of requests on a couple other topics that I'd like to uh, delve into, which I think will be good and fun and informative biblically. And I also think, I honestly think this uh, will be a very informative um, podcast, I hope, even just from a, a hermeneutic standpoint. This is a face, fancy way of saying how we interpret the Bible, and hopefully this will uh, paint a little bit of a picture when people ask, you take the Bible literally. Um, hopefully, we even as we do this apologetic, we can explain how we're approaching the text. But before I get into the specifics of uh, Daniel chapter 7, as well as Mark 13 slash Matthew 24, um, just ever so briefly, I want to recap my weekend. I uh, had a good weekend with Grace Agenda. Um, it was how to keep your children. I don't have any children, uh, so I'm not too worried about keeping them. Uh, but nonetheless, there are uh, plenty of things that relate to me in the church and uh, helping raise up the next generation. Um, but one of the highlights of the weekend was actually a little cross-politic get-together on Saturday night. So after the conference ended, a group of us went to a little barbecue joint here in Moscow called the Hoof and Trotter. We went down to the basement, 
and we just kind of fellowshiped, hung out, talked, and uh, probably the highlight of that, which I think many of you who are listening can easily incorporate into your weekly routine and calling your friends together, is we sang psalms together. Uh, then we also sang the deep, deep love of Jesus, um, and, and it really stood out as just a tremendously edifying time. So when you think of your Saturday nights and getting together, we had maybe 30 people there, uh, getting together with 30 other saints and singing worship psalms, uh, songs and psalms to Yahweh and prepping for the Sabbath, um, it's actually just tremendously encouraging. And so even when you just think of a very practical thing that you guys can be doing uh, for fellowship and getting the church ready for worship as well as for evangelism, it's having a meal together on a Saturday night and very simply just singing some psalms together. So here's a brief uh, recording. Um, the recording may not be great. I did it off of my little uh, Pixel phone. Um, and so, yeah, it may not be great. I have a, the video up at the Cross Politic Facebook page. You can see that hit there, but just wanted to give you a basic idea of what that sounded like, and then hopefully some of you guys would ask your friends and uh, uh, brothers and sisters in Christ from your church to maybe get together on Saturday nights, have a little meal, and do something like this. flavor of what we had going on on Saturday night that uh, I think anybody can, with a little bit of effort, can incorporate into uh, their fellowship, um, takes a little bit of repentance and discipline. But one of the, I think one of the main things, even just coming out of the conference and being here in Moscow in general, is as Christians, we need to self-consciously be creating culture. Um, oftentimes, we're just so passive in accepting uh, the current cultural status, what we do, how we use our time, how we spend our money, and all that sort of stuff. And I think it's a pretty high time that when you look at the collapsing culture around us, we should be self-consciously seeking to reconstruct uh, culture in a godly way. And one of the most simplest ways of doing that is having meals as, as a church and singing songs with one another. And uh, hopefully today, and in getting into uh, the, this last segment in our Jewish apologetic um, we can also just have a little bit of optimism that Jesus Christ is, in fact, king, that through his death, burial, and resurrection, he's been vindicated. Uh, he'll vindicate us at the end of history, but he's also vindicating his church in time and space. And so that's what we're going to uh, look at today is uh, just the basic idea of Daniel chapter 7 as well as uh, Mark chapter 13, because in uh, both of those, uh, you have reference to the coming of the Son of Man, and um, Jesus also references, let the reader understand when they see the abomination that causes desolation spoken about by the prophet Daniel. Um, you know, let, let you know, let let the reader be warned. So that's uh, we just want to briefly look at that because if you go to Daniel chapter seven and you read the opening, you get a, a vision of a lion, and then you get a vision of a bear, and, and then this last beast. Um, there's one other beast in there: uh, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and then you get this uh, other crazy beast coming up out of the water or out of the sea, rather. And that is picked up in the book of Revelation. And um, and so one of the important things, even on a very simple level, when someone asks you if you take the Bible literally, um, ask any of your friends who says, oh, I take the Bible literally, if they take Daniel chapter 7 literally. If they do, Daniel chapter 7 contradicts itself uh, in a real simple way. So if you go to, if you read Daniel chapter 7 and you read about the, the lion, the, um, the bear, the leopard, and the beast, um, it says that these, these monsters come up out of the water. 
or out of the sea. And so does anyone really think that a literal lion is going to come up out of the sea? Does anyone think that a literal leopard or a literal bear or a literal beast is going to come up out of the sea and uh, do everything recounted there in Daniel chapter 7? Nobody does. And even Daniel himself actually says this in uh, Daniel chapter uh, 7, verse 17. He says, These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. So where are they coming from? Are they going to come from the earth or are they going to come from the sea? Um, if you're open to the idea of symbolism, you can understand that uh, they you know, come up out of the earth. They're, they're kings of the earth. But the, the sea is kind of these chaos, oftentimes in the Old Testament. And that's why in the book of Revelation, when uh, John says there'll be uh, no more sea, he's referring back to these, um, this kind of chaos that uh, these beasts, uh, these enemies of God's people will come up out of. And so even in a very simple way, if you're going to approach the Bible, um, from a hermeneutic standpoint, there's a sense in which you don't want to be a literalist. Uh, you want to take the Bible seriously, not necessarily literally, depending on how that term literal is being used. And so in a very simple way, I just wanted to uh, kind of look at that in Daniel chapter 7, as well as um, the basic idea of the, the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, if, if you look at um, verse 13, it says, I saw in the night vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancients of days and presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so just in the context of Daniel chapter 7, the idea of one like the son of man um, does not, uh, I, I just say following the symbolism of these beasts being kings, one like the son of man I believe can either be an individual, or even if you jump down, um, it can also be the saints um, that it's being referred to. And so what you do have, even in the Son of Man, and as well as in the kingdom imagery, is that you have an individual figure as well as uh, corporate uh, identity as well. And I, I think you kind of have both those things going on. But in the first century, when Jesus is uh, picking up that language of the coming of the Son of Man, um, I think at that point in history, uh, the Jews hearing the Son of Man language, are kind of having messianic expectations around it. And that becomes important for us in just a very broad back uh, drop coming into uh, Mark chapter 13, because you realize Daniel chapter 7 is not a crass literalism, otherwise it would be an absurd chapter. Um, so it's set in the context for one coming like the Son of Man. And in the Old Testament, the Son of Man can just be a human figure. In uh, Psalm chapter 8, it speaks of, uh, you know, what's the Son of Man that you're mindful of him when, uh, you know, he considers the heavens and everything else. Um, Ezekiel is referred to as the Son of Man. And so, so in and of itself, it's not necessarily a messianic term. It could just refer to a human being. It's not necessarily God in the flesh language. Um, it's not necessarily an angelic being. Uh, but there's some leeway in the use of that term. And so, anyway, that, that, that's pretty basic. Uh, I don't want to get too in-depth because uh, part of the reason I was going to extend this to another uh, discussion is like I almost feel like I could I could easily spend 30, 30 minutes I could spend an hour maybe not me personally uh, but an hour could easily be spent on Daniel chapter seven teasing out the implications but I just wanted a real broad backdrop and so that brings us to the New Testament and Mark chapter thirteen we turn to Mark chapter thirteen because we also get I believe a time reference for prophecy of when it's going to be fulfilled and so I think all these things together Daniel chapter two Daniel chapter nine Daniel chapter seven Mark chapter 13, are all strong apologetic to your Jewish friends as you're seeking to show that Jesus is, in fact, a Jewish Messiah. So if we uh, turn to uh, Mark chapter 13, you read verses 1 and 2. This kind of gets the context for the whole thing. 
And as he, Jesus, came out of the temple, where is he coming from? The temple. One of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So according to verse one and two, what are they discussing? They're discussing the temple. What does Jesus say is going to happen? There will not be left one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so, you know, the disciples loved the temple. A Jew in the first century would have loved the temple, the dwelling place of Yahweh. It would have been, you know, their status and symbol that, look, our God dwells with us. And there's a surefire sign that God would, in fact, throw off the, the Romans and everything else. And then verse 3, however, tells us this. As he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, tell us, when will these things be? What thing is he asking them about? Going back to verse 2, um, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so they come and they ask him, what? when will these things be? And, uh, and what will be the sign when all these things will be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, see it, no one leads you astray. Many will call in my name, saying, I am he, blah, blah, blah. And so if you jump down to, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm going to jump pretty far down to verse 24. Um, it says, but in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from the heavens, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the earth to the ends of the heaven. And then in verse 32, but concerning, uh, or verse 31 rather, um, I'm sorry, verse 30. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away in all, until all these things take place. So what's the basic gist of what's going on in Mark chapter 13? The disciples look at the temple. Um, they say it's a beautiful building. Jesus says it's all coming down. They come to him. When will it be and what will be the sign of your coming? Uh, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass away. And yeah, this isn't really the way to study the Bible, uh, but, but in a very basic way, and I'm actually jumping to uh, Matthew chapter 24 at this point. But if you were just hop in the book of Matthew, and I can't remember how many times, I think five times the term generation is used in the book of Matthew, and it's always referring to the then existing generation. And so in Matthew chapter 24, when it says this generation will not pass away, uh, why would we think that suddenly he's punting this thing two, three, four, however many thousand years into the future? Um, but not keeping it to the temple. So think about it for a second. Jesus is standing there in AD 33. He says that this generation will not pass away until his building comes down. And biblically speaking, in very broad terms, a generation's 40 years. A generation wandered around the desert. How long was that? That was 40 years. So Jesus looking at that generation, standing there in roughly AD 30, AD 33. He says, look at this building. It's coming down. When's it going to happen? I'll tell you the truth. This generation is not passing away until this thing comes down. So 40 years from AD 30, 33 comes to when? AD 70. When was Jerusalem destroyed? Uh, during the Jewish wars in AD 70, uh, when the Roman Empire came, sacked Jerusalem, destroyed it, and everything else. And so uh, so as, you, as we look at our apologetic, even the things you want to ask the Jews as you're engaging them is, how do you make atonement? They have no temple. Where are the Kohens or the priests? And how do you have a genealogy of who the priests are and everything else? And so the very nature of uh I would just say the whole Jewish system um, should at least be a small piece of irony that Jesus of Nazareth comes along, claims to be the true temple, claims to be the Lamb of God, takes away the sins of the world. He's crucified. He's dead. He's buried. He's resurrected. And 40 years later, uh, Jerusalem's destroyed 
just as Jesus said it would. And so, which also in Daniel chapter 9 says the city will be destroyed. And all of that happens. The, the Messiah is going to be cut off. The city is going to be destroyed. All of that happens in the first century. Now, the Jew can just argue, ah, oh, it's all coincidental, blah, blah. Fair enough, you can. Um, but if you're honestly looking at Daniel as a prophet and you're willing to consider the words of Jesus of Nazareth, um, and everybody has to take the destruction of Jerusalem seriously. Um, now the question becomes, is that what Mark 13 is talking about? I believe the answer is yes. Is that what Matthew chapter 24 is talking about, the destruction of Jerusalem? I believe the answer is yes. Dispensationalists want to punt it into the future. I don't believe there's any reason for that. Because the language of the coming of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7 deals with the vindication of God's people. It does not deal, as we often take it to be, the second coming. So if you read Matthew chapter... Uh, 24 or Mark chapter 13 in terms of the second coming, then I think you're going to distort the passage. If you read it in the context of the vindication, the coming of the Son of Man deals with the vindication of God and his people, then you can see the destruction of Jerusalem as being the basis for that. So hopefully uh, that makes sense. I, I, I think if you sit down and you look at Daniel chapter 7, and even one of the, even kind of tied in all of Daniel really, Daniel chapter 1, they go into exile, then what happens? Daniel gets vindicated and he's exalted into the court. Um, Daniel gets thrown into the fire, then what? He gets exalted and he comes out of the flames. And so even this death and resurrection motif is found in the book of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 7, the people of God are vindicated. Through the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus was vindicated and the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was a vindication uh, publicly for all to see. You had the individual event that 500 at least witnessed the resurrection, but then you had the big public event, a destruction of Jerusalem, which was also the vindication of God's people. So as you're interacting with the Jews, what you do want to press home is Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 9, and uh, Matthew chapter 24, and Mark chapter 13. And even as Jesus says... You know, just read, uh, just look at my life, just read Moses in light of my life, just read Daniel in light of his life, and that's what you got to encourage the Jews to do, because what modern Judaism is, is trying everything it can, its power, to keep the Jew from engaging the actual text and actually engaging the Gospels, and your responsibility, one of your main responsibilities is not in of itself to win an argument with them, but get them to engage who Jesus is in the context of Judaism, not in the context of 2,000-year-old you know, 2,000 years later, Christianity. Um, but get them reading their own books, their own prophets, then ask them to consider the life, life of Jesus of Nazareth and the events surrounding his whole life from uh, the, his being cut off, the destruction of Jerusalem. And I think you have a pretty powerful apologetic for why Jesus is, in fact, uh, the Jewish Messiah. So next week, we're going to uh, pick up a new topic. I got a couple things in the hopper that I'm kind of debating. Uh, not sure which way I'm going to go with it 100%. But if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to contact me at Keith at campuspreacher.com. You can look me up on the Twitter. Uh, I believe I'm Campus Evangel there. And um, what else? Yeah, feel free to contact me. I realize I ran through, I realize there are a lot of details in Mark chapter 13 uh, that could be teased out. But look, we're trying to do a brief little uh, bite apologetics to give you something to chew on, hopefully, uh, but not necessarily a full course meal and maybe whet your appetite for more. So if you need more, feel free to contact me. I would, I love hearing from you. I'm not always the best emailer, but email me. I'll get back to you, uh, Lord willing. So uh, until next time, the Lord bless you, keep you, and look forward to hearing from you. God bless.
might well come before the bloom. He runs on his way, there's no time to be going slow. Hurry, take what you've got, do with it what you can. Cause the good God in heaven needs.